Agnext is really unique because we bring together diverse teams to solve wicked challenges. Hello, and welcome to CSU Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's Spur Campus in Denver, Colorado. Thinking about what we like to call unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences really drive the solutions to wicked problems. On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, health, and sustainability, and learn about their current work and their career journeys. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, Associate Vice Chancellor of the CSU Spur Campus, and I'm joined today by Dr. Kim Stackhouse-Lawson. Dr. Stackhouse-Lawson is a professor of animal science and director of AgNext at CSU. CSU AgNext was launched to find solutions to feed 12.3 billion people by 2100 by focusing on innovation and sustainable solutions in agriculture. Prior to her time at CSU, Kim was the director of sustainability for JVS USA, where she was responsible for coordinating the North American Sustainability Program. And prior to that, she was the executive director of global sustainability at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Kim received her PhD in animal science from the University of California, Davis, and was a postdoc fellow at Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine Beef Cattle Institute. Welcome, Dr. Stackhouse Lawson. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So your bio describes a little bit of your path, and I'm excited to dive in on how you got where you are. But let's start with AgNext. And as I mentioned, it's focused on sustainability, particularly sustainability in animal agriculture. But can you break that down a little bit? What does that mean? What is AgNext? Sure. Um, So AgNext is a relatively new initiative um, at CSU, and it uniquely sits between the College of Agricultural Sciences and the College of Vet Med and Biomedical Sciences. And so it sort of brings food and health together in a really unique way to solve some of the industries, so the animal agricultural industries, wicked problems. And that's really why we were created. There was a huge need for increased partnership between academia and industry to solve questions that industry couldn't solve by themselves. And so what we are um, focused on today predominantly is greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture. Um, But our team is uniquely positioned to also answer questions about Um, more health-related things like antibiotic resistance, for example. Um, And so I joke that we are always the team that addresses the issues that are um, sometimes uncomfortable, right? Sometimes politically polarizing and oftentimes don't have a right answer um, because something that we might study may impact something else, right? So for example, if you're trying to reduce antibiotic use in animal agriculture, you could in fact increase, right, animal health issues or animal welfare concerns. And so our research really looks at multiple angles of the entire system to try to not find the right answer because there likely isn't one, but actually a better answer. Okay, so can we take a step back and you've mentioned animal agriculture. Can you say a little bit more about what that encompasses? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. So I think the best way to describe what animal agriculture is, is to think about all of the ways that animals touch our lives. And then animal agriculture is actually the production of that, right? So if you think about it's 1045 in the morning, um, I don't know when the podcast will air, but let's 
everybody just start from 1045 in the morning and think backwards around about how, what you, what you've done this morning, right? So the first thing I do in the morning is I have to get a cup of coffee. I like milk in my coffee, right? The milk of course is coming from animal agriculture. And then the next thing I did was make my kids breakfast and I made them um, biscuits and gravy this morning and it was sausage gravy, right? And so the sausage comes from a pig, of course. And then the milk that goes into the gravy comes from a cow. And then the butter that goes in to the biscuits, right, comes from a cow as well. And then I was getting, we have research going on at the, at the moment right now. So we, um, I then came to work um, and we weighed and gave vaccinations to our research cattle. So to do that, I put on my boots, right, which are made from leather. And I walked out the door to, to have, of course, actually do what I do, which is research animal agriculture. But if we all think about the ways in which animals touch our lives, it's in almost every aspect, right? I also put on makeup. There's animal products and makeup as well. And so animal agriculture is the productions of those things for people. And animal agriculture, Jocelyn, is it's so fun, right? Because you get to work with the animals and they're incredible. But also it's a field where technology is really exploding. And so the opportunity for jobs in the animal agriculture space right now is just incredible. I mean, you know, we are now able to put collars on cows and move them from our phones. And so, I mean, from computer analytics to actually stepping on a horse every day, you know, the diversity of profession is just incredibly um, vast in animal agriculture. And they do a lot of really important things for us. So I'd love to come back to some of the career opportunities within the animal agriculture space, but say more about putting collars on cows and moving them from your phone. Oh, yeah. So um, that's really new um, innovation. Not that new. I mean, we've been working on this in the animal agriculture field. Um, Not me personally. I don't have a ton of experience, but the animal agriculture field has been working on this for four or five years now. So it's the same sort of theory as an electric fence for your dog, right? The dog wears the collar and you now, of course, can um, put polygons through phone with GPS, right? For the halo dog collars and those kinds of things and move move their um, fence as you go on a walk or something like that. It's the same exact concept for cattle. And so it's basically, we, we it's called virtual fence or virtual herding. And it allows us to make movements of animals across the landscape without actually building fence. And it's incredible and it's controlled from your phone. Um, and it is one of the it's being adopted the very, very quickly right now by producers, actually, who are um, really interested in doing a better job of managing the landscape with that technology. And so we can do things like fence out riparian areas. We can do things like move cattle to higher quality forages at different times of the year. We can manage an operation for bird habitat in a different way, right? So instead of spending thousands and thousands of dollars fencing out particular um, habitat where a bird may be nesting only two months of the year. Now you can just drop a polygon, right? And if you have the technology on your cow, they'll stay out of that bird habitat. And so it's really an incredible way to optimize our landscapes for ecosystem services. And so those are things like fresh water and wildlife habitat and soil carbon sequestration and all the wonderful things that our landscapes provide us. And then to also do a better job managing the food system that's on that particular landscape. You can also, right, if you're like, maybe you want to graze, you have an area 
of your ranch or a producer does has an area of um, his or her ranch that is overgrown with brush. And maybe it's a fire hazard, for example, they can actually work on concentrating the cattle in those um, particular locations. And right, we can, we know cattle can, and sheep too, there's also technology for sheep, can reduce some, some of that fire ro- load either by consumption or even by trampling, right? Mm-hmm. Like actually confining them in an area enough that they can trample some of those, you know, brush type species down and get them more under control. And then we can manage that differently for fire. So that that technology is it's really exciting. And I think it's really exciting to think about, right, opportunities in that space. Like we need collars that will last their batteries to last up to a year. Mm-hmm. They need to be light enough for an animal to wear. They need to be able to expand as the animal grows. Like there are big questions around how to do these sorts of things, right? And, and it takes really diverse perspective to do that, um, not just from how and where you grew up, but engineers are involved, computer programmers are involved, right? GIS specialists are involved, animal scientists are involved, range scientists are involved, ecologists are involved, wildlife specialists are involved. And so it's it's a really, and, and that's just one example, right? Um, but where lots of different interests can come together to, to create something that's really exciting. So the, that's a great example. And I, I want to come back to a term you used, wicked problems. But let's talk a yeah. little bit about what does that term mean? People may have heard it or not. And, and specifically, how does it apply in the research work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think when we think about a wicked problem, right, the, the first thing I start with is that there's likely not a right answer, <laughs> right? There's not a silver bullet approach. And oftentimes there it's, it may be silver buckshot, right? It may be that, um, especially in cattle production, if we think about all of the different locations in which those animals are raised, you know, the, the region of the world, the culture, right? People, people raise animals, right? So there's huge cultural implications. There's incredible social implications to those animals. There's different breeds of cattle. There's, you know, they, an animal that is in Florida has very different grass to eat, right? Than an animal that is in Montana, they have very different challenges that they face, both the people that manage them and the animals that are there. And so oftentimes, first thing, wicked problems do not have a right answer. Wicked problems also may have multiple answers to get to a similar outcome. And it may be that one menu option, I like to call them menu options, will work for one individual, but it wouldn't work for another. And so let's go back to the cattle that are raised in Florida and Montana, right? So something that we may discover to solve a wicked problem may work for the rancher in Florida. And in Montana, that same solution may cause bigger problems, right? And then the other thing that's unique about wicked challenges is that oftentimes, if you pull the lever, let's say we've come up with the solution and we're going to pull the lever, that oftentimes that lever doesn't just impact the thing we're trying to solve, but it impacts other things. And so when we think about those wicked challenges or wicked problems, the first thing we want to do is put diverse teams together. And that's diversity in perspective. It's diversity in expertise. Um, it's diversity in, you know, where you where you're from, what you look like, who you are, right? Because more diverse teams are more innovative. And part of that innovation is actually 
thinking about what we like to call unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences really drive the solutions to wicked problems. And so teams that love wicked problems are very comfortable with never having a right answer, just having a better one. Right. Right. And I think that that's something that we see in a lot of young people, that they're actually really interested in those hard questions, right? And teams that that work on those have to have incredible respect for each other, right? And your lived experience, mm-hmm. and they have to have incredible respect and appreciation for this system, right? So the rancher in Montana and the rancher in Florida, right? We, we really, we have to appreciate them. Right. And, and really value their perspective and their lived experience. Um, but they're really fun problems to work on. And being a part of a team that works on them is really rewarding. Great. So let's take a let's zoom out a little bit on what mm-hmm. some of the wicked problems are within animal agriculture. You, you mentioned greenhouse gases as being something that you're really focused on. So I definitely want to hit on that. But I could imagine some you know, impacts on the ecosystem where the cattle are grazing are a piece of that. So it's impacts on other wildlife, impacts on streams, rivers, water bodies, those sorts of things. What are some of the other wicked problems or pieces of sustainability in animal ag that might not be, that might be a bit surprising for people? Yeah. So actually we really worry, and I would say this is probably the most challenging problem that animal agriculture faces, but the average age of a producer who produces food from animals is 65 to 70. And we're seeing a tremendous outmigration of people from rural communities. And those rural, it's happening for a variety of reasons. And those rural communities are um, quite under-resourced, right, from a social perspective. And so oftentimes they may not have um, access to broadband internet. There's a wonderful ranching family in Southern Colorado, and they were fortunate enough that their daughter, who's my age, came back and wanted to continue her her family's six-generation legacy, actually, um, raising cattle. And um, she drives her three children to school an hour one way. And those kids go to school with just 30 other kids. Mm -hmm. And they are a very important contributor to the animal agriculture industry. They have a lot of cows. They do a phenomenal job. Not only are they environmental stewardship winners, they're Leopold um, environmental stewardship winners for the work that they've done with bighorn sheep actually on their ranch. And that's a huge challenge um, is, is how do we really support the continuation of farming and ranching because our food systems depend upon it, right? And those rural communities are um, really important. And so our ability to to connect with them and to to um, things like Spurk, for example, right? Um, how how can we help them connect virtually, or how how could we help them connect to students in Denver? Um, and how could we connect students with Denver to them? I mean, those things are. Those things are really important. And I'm not sure actually that there's a a concerted effort that is being placed on that. And we we our group does not yet, we have not yet gone down that avenue to try to help that that major wicked problem. Um, but it's a really important one. 
um, in the animal agriculture space. Yeah, not and not only to animal ag, but ag in general, food food systems in general, right? So that is part of what Spurs' mission is is to is to inspire the next generation to re-engage in in the food system in whatever way makes the most sense to them from whatever background they're they're bringing into this. And you made a really good point about the diversity of teams, and so there is a, a lots of different opportunities for people with different interests and backgrounds and expertise to to contribute to solving these really complicated problems because we do need those diverse teams to um, be bringing their their different creative approaches all together in order to solve these wicked problems one of which the you know I think maybe the wicked problem that most is most uh, on people's minds these days is climate and greenhouse gas emissions mm-hmm. so maybe we can go back to that a little bit I know yeah. it's a particular area of interest for you and your team so let's talk a little bit about greenhouse gas emissions and in, in animal ag and what you're seeing where you see the the most hope for uh, progress when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and um, what, what in particular you all are researching. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So animal agriculture contributes just around 4% of greenhouse gas emissions, man-made greenhouse gas emissions um, to um, the U.S., the total U.S. production of those emissions. And the three greenhouse gases that come from animal agriculture are CO2, um, methane, and nitrous oxide. Um, Methane is the one that we worry the most about because if you think about total man-made methane from the U.S. animal agriculture or enteric fermentation contributes about 30%. So animals produce methane through their normal biological processes. So they have one stomach and that's one stomach has four compartments, but the compartment that really generates their energy and contributes the methane is called the rumen. And that rumen contains thousands of um, microorganisms. So when animals eat hay or grass or grain, the microbes actually digest that in the rumen. And then the nutrients basically go across into the into the blood, right, and and through the other digestive processes of of the animal, which are stomachs more more like ours. Um, during that microbial breakdown of foodstuffs, methane is produced. There's methanogens that are in the rumen. So what's really interesting is that the same for the same reasons that ruminants are so powerful, right? They can upcycle. We talk about upcycling. So they can graze grass that nothing else uses, right? And turn it into food for us and other goods, leather and all kinds of really good things. That same biological function that allows them to do that is exactly what produces the methane, right? So I always start with, we never want to get to zero methane from a cow because if we do, she's not well. Right, right. She is, she, she can't function without methanogen. She needs them in her natural processes, but we do think we can reduce them. And so we're exploring a number of ways to reduce um, methane from animals. Um, feed additives are, are one thing that work. So we can feed animals different things and shift that microbial population so that there's fewer methanogens. We also see pretty interesting individual variation between animals. And so we actually think we might be able to genetically select for lower methane producing animals. 
And then the other thing we might be able to do is to really manage around it. So how could we, for example, with the collars, get animals to higher quality forage where we know that methane is reduced, it's reduced on higher quality forage at different times of the year? And is are there management strategies that we can implement to really optimize that? So um, one of the things we have up in Fort Collins is the Agriculture Research Development and Education Center. And within RDEC, we have built the largest facility in the country to measure greenhouse gas emissions from beef cattle. So we can measure up to 300 head at one time in confinement, so in more of a feedlot setting. And in that setting, we do a lot of really controlled feed additive work. And then we can also measure animals on grazing. And in those systems, we tend to approach it more from a management perspective, right? So how might we um, optimize grazing to reduce methane and other greenhouse gas emissions from the system? Um, but it's a it's a really exciting field. Um, it's a really hard field. Um, it's one of those wicked challenges, right? Because if we reduce methane, we can cause lots of other unintended problems for the animal and for the health and well-being of the animal. And then there's also some really unique wins, right? So how might we be able to potentially even increase animal health and reduce methane? Um, so it's it's exciting. It's fun. We have great participation from our industry partners, um, and we really enjoy the work. That's great. So uh, obviously, you and your team are passionate about solving these complicated problems where you have trade-offs, potentially. It'd be nice to have everything have a win-win solution, but of course, that's it really not, would be, yes. wouldn't it? In all in all facets, right? But of course, that's not always possible. So greenhouse gas emissions is one area of research. What what else are you studying? What's got you excited? What gets you out of bed? Yeah, so my area of expertise is actually greenhouse gases. So um, my specific research, um, I actually study greenhouse gas emissions from grazing systems. Um, and so I, I love doing that. Probably what gets me out of bed in the morning is the incredible team that we have here. So Agnext is really unique because we bring together diverse teams to solve wicked challenges. And those diverse teams are spread out across CSU's campus. So we have economists. We have two economists, for example, who think about costs and market creation, like carbon markets, for example, costs of implementation, for example, of, of greenhouse gas emissions or social um, implications of implementing precision technology like the collars, right? So, so one of the questions around precision tech is, does it further marginalize rural communities by removing jobs, Right. So do, do we actually further exasperate the problem in rural communities as technology enters? And so we have team members that, that look at those kind of questions. We have team members who are stress physiologists. So they think about the impact of how we raise animals on the animal stress or the impact of a changing climate. There's actually a lot of work happening, right? As the, as the climate gets hotter and more unpredictable, what's happening to the animal and their stress load and how is that Im impacting other things, um, microbiome, methane emissions, animal health, their antibiotic use, are vaccines still working in the same way that they should be? Or are these immune systems essentially, you know, creating new challenges. Um, and so we have an incredible team of people that are really looking at sustainability through multiple lenses of health, 
of um, social dynamics and social structure of carbon markets and incentives and why and why not producers adopt things. Of course, greenhouse gas emissions, ecology, um, ecosystem services, wildlife habitat. And so that diverse team and their perspectives is, is what gets me up in the morning. The other thing that we are so lucky is that because that team provides such incredible value to our animal agriculture producer partners, our relationships are second to none. Like they, they actually call us when they have a question that they can't figure out. And to watch my team, our team, the CSU team interact with those producers and to help them solve problems in real time in their operations and truly contribute to getting food on the table for, for people everywhere is, is it's really special. Um, and it's a really rewarding uh, field of work. So as director of Agnext, what does a day in the life look like for you then? You have this team, you have corporate partnerships, you have industry partnerships, you're doing research. What, what does that look like? How does it all come together? Yeah. So I can just talk a little bit about this week um, because it's a good example. So we started on Monday hosting Robo Banks um, regional directors for their rural business. Um, and so that's Robo Agrifinance. So they're a very large financial institution that lends a lot in the agricultural space. And so we had um, 20 people from every single country, which was kind of fun, except Antarctica, um, here looking looking at our research and talking about ways um, in which the finance industry can help on sustainability and, and what kind of data they should be asking from their partners and how we might actually be able to encourage adoption, either through reduction of interest rates, for example, in, in ag loans and et cetera. From there, I traveled to Clay Center, Nebraska to meet with USDA ARS at the Meat Animal Research Center to ensure that our teams are collaborating and not duplicating work. So, you know, one of the things, as you know, that happens in, in research and academia is that people can get quite siloed, right? And, and really be thinking about the one thing that they're good at. And so as leaders, we need to make sure that we're not duplicating efforts, that we're doing a really good job connecting diverse teams across multiple institutions, not just universities, but um, government research agencies as well. And then they don't have any kind of engagement or outreach, but we do. So we can take a lot of their learnings and help extend it to our producer partners to make sure that they have the, the latest and greatest information um, that's happening in the, in the field of research. Um, I spent two days doing that. Um, drove back, arrived back on in Fort Collins this morning, and we are starting a, a new a new research project. And so, this morning we started at six a.m. Um, weighing and vaccinating and worming um, two hundred head of of steers that are that are coming, so that we can measure greenhouse gas emissions from them. And I'll finish the day doing that. We'll do that until one. Um, we're going to host another group out here this afternoon. We do a lot of engagement and a lot of outreach. And then I'll finish the day with a, a few meetings with my team on other research projects we have going on this summer and hopefully get a few emails answered. <laughs> and then and then I'll head home and be a mom. So it's a new thing every day. But as the director, my job is really to clear the path for my team, make sure we're collaborating with the right you know, diverse teams that are interested in the same things we're interested in. Um, and then we're available for, for our stakeholders. 
One of the things I really appreciate about what you just described is this connection with others. So not only within CSU do you have a team that's quite diverse and coming from different disciplines, but also you're connecting with other institutions and other industry partners. And so there's this real transparency, openness, connection. And I think that's not maybe what people think of or maybe what comes to mind first when they think about research in academia. So I, I do think that's the direction it's t- it's tending to move in, but um, it, it is it's great to see this this particular example and how energizing it is, and um, how with wicked problems you really kind of don't have a choice in some ways to collaborate. There's no other way to kind of untie the knot. So let's talk a little bit about how you got where you are. We'll have a, a little bit of a walk down memory lane, I suppose, for you. So. To walk us backward a little bit, when did your interest in this career path start? Were there some moments or people who were critical in, in leading you to where you are now? Yeah, so um, I'll start at the beginning. I wasn't an ag kid. So I was nine years old, and uh, my parents were both for, are both foresters, so they're involved in natural resources. And we lived on five acres because my mom loved horses and I loved horses, but we weren't involved in animal agriculture per se. Um, And we went to our county fair and I fell in love with a sheep and I told my mom I wanted to do 4-H. And where was this? Where was this? um, In Northern California, Shasta Mm -hmm. County in Redding, California. And um, she let me. And that was a mistake on on her part because by the time I was in fourth grade, I had 50 ewes on our five acres and we had to move. Um, and so my, my expansion, yes, yes. My parents just never, I guess, told me, no, I don't know. That's very kind of them. Mm -hmm. No, sorry. The lights are going up. Um, yeah, that, so we had 50 ewes and then they bought 460 acres of trees. So we actually bought after a mega forest fire and we replanted that whole 460 acres with trees. And then we used my sheep to graze because we weren't big enough to buy chemicals and pesticides and stuff. Right. But my parents knew what they were doing clearly because they're foresters. And so we sort of meshed agriculture and natural resources together because I liked the the sheep. So by the time I graduated from high school, my brother who also um, loves animals and I had 300 ewes and we had 25 cows. My parents only have 15 of those ewes left. Yeah, I just, I loved animals and I loved the interaction between the environment and them. And I saw it work, right? Yeah, it was special to me. And so it's what I wanted to do. Um, So I went to Davis, had the opportunity to go to Davis. Um, UC Davis was a phenomenal school. And um, I was so lucky because I grew up with sheep. I got to live in the sheep unit at Davis. So I didn't have to pay any rent. So it's free for students to live at Davis, but you take care of the research block. And so I had 400 ewes there. Um, There were three students that lived there at one time. And it was my job to feed them and lamb them out and take care of them and then run research projects, not run the project, but feed the animals on the research projects and things for the scientists. And so I learned to love sheep and research. And then I lived in the cow barn for a little while at Davis too. um, And I learned to love cows and cow research. And then I was a senior fourth year undergraduate at Davis when San Francisco had their first meatless Monday. And there was an opportunity to study greenhouse gases from agriculture to answer a big wicked problem. And it felt right. So I did it. (laughs) I guess the rest is history. Um, So yeah, uh, I guess I'm a 4-H success story. Um, Absolutely. You absolutely are. Mm -hmm. It's really special. And, you know, animal agriculture, the, the people 
you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't still, right. I'm not from ag. I didn't grow up in a family with this wonderful history. We've created a real, some really cool things as a family. And my brother and I were um, very successful with our show sheep and other things, but this industry has, yeah, they've just kind of supported me and welcomed me and um, welcomed a different perspective. I mean, you know, I'm a woman from California and I study greenhouse gases and they've never been anti me. They've always just welcomed me. And, you know, there's not a lot of women in animal agriculture, but doors were presented to me and opened for me by a lot of men. Um, and I'm very thankful that they could see potential, even if it didn't look like them. And now we see so many more women um, joining the team. We have five graduate students. They're all women. Our team is predominantly men, but there's a there's a few of us mm-hmm. um, that are women. And um, it's exciting to to see our young graduate students absolutely excel. Well, and it, it seems to me that the work that you all are doing as a team and what you have experienced throughout your career is um, maybe not what people would expect, but you have been welcomed. The ideas that you all are researching obviously have value for the private sector because they are collaborating with you. Let's talk a little bit about you. So you came up through the private sector a little bit after your after your graduate work. Um, talk a little bit about your work at JBS, which is a large meat processing yeah. pa- meat packing company. What your work around sustainability there was like, and um, how it led you to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. So at JBS, um, I coordinated the sustainability program for the company outside of Brazil. So that included the chicken and pork and beef, and then all the other businesses. Um, but those are the 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 three big ones um, for North America. So there's business, of course, in, in Canada and Mexico, in addition to the U.S. And then I coordinated it for the, the European business, um, and that's a chicken and pork business. And then um, I coordinated it for Australia and New Zealand as well. You know, to, I started there in 2016, I believe, and it was before they had a corporate sustainability program. Now, today they have quite, quite a robust um, sustainability program, as do most companies, and so that's what I that's what I did. I sort of took um, my technical background um, of science and I learned something very, very new. And so for people who are thinking about jobs too, right? I mean, you can be a, t- a technical person and and study greenhouse gas emissions and really understand the nuances of why they're produced in a in a food system, right? Doesn't matter. We study cattle, but it could be anything. Or there's incredible opportunities actually on the manufacturing side or the processing side. And it's not just meat companies, right? I mean, I went to work for a meat company, but companies like Nestle or Danone or um, Unilever, right? They all have really incredible and robust sustainability programs. And it's it's a different approach. So they'll They'll report things very transparently in their annual sustainability reports. They'll report things according to Global Reporting Initiative or the Carbon Disclosure Program or SASB. So there's all these different standards. They set goals. They report goals. And they're not just greenhouse gases, right? It's it's dependent upon things like team member um, health and well-being or community support or, you know, whatever is impactful or important to that company. And Energy, so, water use. There's absolutely. a ton of different methods. Yep. So fun. Yeah. And so that's what I did at JBS. I coordinated that. One of the projects there, now that you mention it, around water use that I'm most proud of is that a team of us there, a huge team of us, I was just one member, worked on a new food safety intervention 
um, in partnership with a, a water savings project. And essentially, we were able to maintain the same food safety standards. So water is really important in food safety, right? And it's, of course, food safety is an incredibly important part of sustainability, clearly. But food safety interventions use a lot of water. And so we were able to innovate a new um, food safety intervention that still maintained the same food safety standards. USDA was also involved in this project, which was really neat. And we saved um, a million gallons of water a day. Wow. That's a striking number. Wow. It was incredible. And then it worked. And so we did it across the 12 JBS USA beef plants. And then we did it in the pork plants. And I don't remember how much total, like millions of gallons we saved, but JBS blew their water savings goal of 10% in five years. We hit it in year two. I think it was incredible what we were able to do. And so those corporate sustainability programs have so, there's so much potential for young people to think about that as an opportunity and to go into that. And it's a real science, Jocelyn, like it is so fun to do. So I do much less of that now. I still um, help a couple companies and I have a couple graduate students who actually want to be chief sustainability officers someday. So I try to bring that, that knowledge to them um, in addition to helping them on the, you know, teaching them all the technical things, but the corporate sustainability space is it's so fun and there's so much opportunity in food so we are out of time so i have just two quick questions for you um the first one is where can people find more information about your work specifically or their website social media we do we have a website it's um agnex.colostate um or i'm sorry that's our email agnex.colostate.edu and then our website is agnex.colostate.edu um and um our team includes pr and communications professionals um who do incredible work so every month there's a new theme so you can learn um on just a 3 minute video and then a 500 word blog what the theme is what we're doing um what kind of research we we have on the website. Um, we're also active on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and the same team does a phenomenal job connecting through those channels. And we would love to engage with everybody. Great. We'll, in- we'll link to all of your resources in the show notes um, and encourage people to go and watch all of the different themes and subjects that are coming through. It's a great way to learn a little bit more about your work. Absolutely. Okay. And last but not least, our spur of the moment question. So you indicated that your your story of your how you got into animal ag is a bit it's a bit accidental, a bit circumstantial, a bit fortuitous. Mm -hmm. What did you want to be? What what was Oh, at first, the yeah, I wanted career. to be a vet. You wanted to be a vet. Yeah. Okay, so well, I wanted it's not to be that a vet. far. Of course, it's not that different. Of course, yes. Yeah. I love animals, yeah. And then um, I actually, when I got accepted into Davis, I realized I could make a bigger impact being a scientist. Yeah. Yeah, and it's because I got to live in the sheep barn, and it's because I got to see these researchers ask questions like in real life on real animals and I saw animals lives get better because Mm -hmm. of research and if we can make animals lives better because of research maybe veterinarians have less caseloads right and and then we can really start to move the needle forward for what better lives look like for animals and that's still yeah I think that's still probably huge for me um, in terms of why I do what I do Um, but yeah I wanted to be a vet when I was nine 
Okay. And I have a second spur of the moment question for you because you mentioned that you made your kids biscuits and gravy this morning. Oh, no, no, no. Let me be perfectly clear. I made my kids biscuits and gravy on the weekend. Okay. Okay. And I reheated All the right. biscuits and gravy. Well, so my question <laughs> for you then is in the kitchen, obviously you have some skills in the kitchen, biscuits and gravy. Um, I can't make biscuits at altitude to save my life. So we should talk offline oh, about how you manage. Quick. Oh, okay. It's surprisingly good too. Yes, okay. It's quick. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stackhouse Lawson. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really, like I said, I'll we'll, um, make sure our listeners know where to find more information about the excellent work you're doing to advance the state of the art and to improve animal and people's animals' lives and people's lives. Appreciate it very yeah. much. Thanks for having us, Jocelyn. Take care. The CSU Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Kevin Samuelson, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned in this episode. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for the next episode. Until then, be well.